The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, hello, and welcome everybody to the next art science. reading group so if this is your first time welcome 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 if this is your second or third or fourth time welcome back thanks for keeping staying with us and hanging out during these really strange times um so just a little bit of housekeeping um we sent around um a piece of artwork and a few readings if you didn't get a chance to check out the artwork or do the readings don't worry uh we still want to hear from you we still want your questions we still want to interact comments throw them in the chat or put them in the Q&A function as we're speaking, don't be shy. Um, For the first half, myself and Amelia will be talking to our phenomenal guest this week, uh, Shiva Quinlan. Um, But while we're having the chats, if there's something that you want to ask or you feel like we missed out on, don't be shy. Be sure that you're getting that in the chat and in the Q&A function all the while. At the halfway mark, which will be at 7 p.m., we're going to open it up to your questions. Um, And we'll be asking our guest of honor um, all of your wonderful questions and getting to your comments. Um, So don't be shy. To introduce myself, my name is Autumn Brown. I am a PhD researcher with the School of Education at Trinity College Dublin and also the researcher in residence at Science Gallery Dublin. And it is my laboratory, my research home, my spiritual home. Um, And this entire production is put on uh, in partnership with Science Gallery Dublin and also the Trinity Long Room Hub. So we want to say thanks to them for hosting us and helping us keep this running. Um, I want to introduce my co-host and co-founder, um, another PhD researcher extraordinaire, uh, Ms. Amelia Conville, who will then introduce our guest. Thank you so much, Autumn. Um, thank you for that wonderful introduction and thank you so much everyone for joining us. Um, Tonight, uh, Storm Emma has not yet quite hit Dublin, but I know it's sort of ravaging other parts of the country. So hopefully, um, as, it, as it begins to, to settle in, uh, everyone is, is going to enjoy our conversation um, with Shivra. Um, as Autumn has said, we're so, so thrilled to have, us, have her with us um, here tonight. Um, so a quick introduction, uh, introduction briefly myself. Uh, my name is Amelia. Um, I'm also a PhD researcher uh, based in Trinity. I'm looking at visual poetry with neurohumanities, um, and I'm based in the School of English and in association, in association with the Institute of Neuroscience. Um, and as Autumn says, the Trinity Long Room Hub is where we both met and kind of conceived of this idea. And we're so grateful to both the Hub and to Science Gallery for continuing to support us um, in our art and science reading group. Um, and to you, the audience, for uh, also keeping us in business here. Um, so I'm going to introduce Sheila for now. Um, again, so, so thrilled to have, us with, with, have her with us uh, here tonight. Um, so Sheila is an Irish vocalist, composer, producer, and researcher. Whilst doing an MPhil in music composition at Trinity College in 2016 and 2017, Shiva researched and revived the forgotten works of female uh, singer-composers from 17th century Italy, which she then performed at the National Gallery of Ireland with David Adams and at the National Concert Hall as part of International Women's Day with Salomia Maximov. Shiva is also involved with outreach programmes, working with artists currently living in direct provision through the mediums of music, drama and art. She's also a co-curator at Ireland's Edge. Her research explores post-human art and intimacy as architects of our digital existence. So Shiva, thank you so much for uh, 
joining us again here tonight. Um, and I will hand over to Autumn for the first of many, many questions that we have to ask you here tonight. Thank All right. So, um, sneaky behind the scenes thing. Um, <laughs> I actually got a chance to read Shivra's research proposal and I was so blown away and so excited by what she'd written down, but there's no better person to explain and talk about their own research and their own passions than the researchers themselves. So Shivra, would you mind uh, talking to us a little bit about what your research is on? Of course. Um, so yeah, at the moment I'm interested in delving into, I haven't quite like fully gotten into the, the pool of all of this, or I'm very much so in the uh, question generating phase of, of research. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in exploring how post-humanism, and we'll unpack that term in, in a little bit, um, but how post-humanism could act as a lens through which we can examine how art and the arts, music, conceptual art, et cetera, and intimacy um, could act as architects of our, our digital existence. And then how, how this could act as, I guess, a kind of, gateway drug of sorts to to engage you know engage empathy empathy and to engage empathetically um with the way that we we interact with with technology um bringing us to a point where and i think where we are right now where we're, we're seeking to to question and, and re-examine where we're at where we can question as to you know how we might rehabilitate this very very broken um relationship that we all have with, with technology um, and then going forward to 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 seek out how we might reimagine what this this future of, of, of a new digital existence might might look like Incredible. And Shubert, can I ask you, I mean, in, in our promotion of, um, of this conversation with you and in a lot of your, um, your research proposals, as Autumn said, that, that we had a look at, we hear this term, the post-human, but I know we're also quite conscious of the term, the transhuman. Um, and I'm thinking about these words, we hear them a lot in public mediums. I'm thinking particularly um, of, I know, tr fellow Trinity graduate Mark O'Connell um, has written this book about uh, transhumanism to be a machine, and that garnered a lot of attention. Uh, can you define the post-human and the transhuman um, and how, what does it mean for you? How do you define these within your creative practice? Yeah, so it's a term that I'm definitely still untangling and, and unpacking. Um, I think it's probably best understood by like rewinding and reversing to, to humanism and, and spending a bit of time thinking about what that is and, and what it really means. And I suppose when, so when we reflect on, on humanism, the way in which it, it, it centers and, and foregrounds the human as the most, the most important, um, and by proxy then sets up a bed of, of binaries, like everything is built then on sort of like Cartesian dualisms. It's all, you know, like man is master over, you know, animals, over the environment. Now it's over, over technology. And in a way where we're still, you know, we think that we're using technology in this sort of man as master way when it's evolved and it's, it's, it's so much more, more complex than, than what we've, you know, what we're able to grapple with when, when we're in sort of a, a philosophy of, of binaries. Um, and like stepping away from, you know, when, when we step away and, and look at humanism and, and look at, you know, how binaries are so embedded into, into society and, 
and how goddamn awful they are. <laughs> and I mean, it only ever manifests as, you know, wineries are never going to be good things. Um, so like, you know, most of the, you know, serious social issues that, that we can look at, um, you know, racism, sexism, like most prejudice is, and bias is wrapped up in, in binary. So I think as we begin to, as we are evolving past that, we're coming into, into these stages of, you know, ditching these binaries in, in lots of different ways and in terms of, of gender. Um, but as we kind of transition out of the binary of humanism, we're landing in, in a really, really strange place at the moment, um, which is somewhere, I mean, we are, we are essentially in, in post-humanism. Um, so transhumanism, again, easy to, to define the things that post-humanism is not before we get there. Um, transhumanism for me is kind of like, like a hyper extension of humanism in that it seeks to, it seeks to transcend. Um, it's, but it still puts the human at like the top of the, the, period, the pyramid. It's still very much so in, you know, this kind of elitist, um, anthropocentric sort of sphere, um, which, I mean, hasn't been healthy and, and doesn't necessarily serve us to only put the, the human, the man first. Um, and I think, and you know, I mean, there's many different kinds of, of transhumanism. So, I mean, this is really only scraping the surface of it, but I mean, one of the core principles is that, you know, you seek to transcend the human body, but, but not necessarily seeking, you know, enlightenment of sorts. It's more so about, um, you know, preservation and uploading your consciousness to the cloud and let's all move to Mars. And it's like, hang on a second, we're, like, you know, in the wake of, 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 of that, you're creating so many other issues. Like, do we really need to go to Mars? Like, do you really need to upload your consciousness to the cloud if it's even possible? Um, like, why do you think you're so important as, as a man, as an, you know, individual? Like, how and when are we going to come away from, you know, centering the individual as this, you know, kind of godlike figure uh, when in fact we're part of a much larger ecosystem? Um, so that's where, like, you know, where posthumanism comes in, where, I mean, it, it, it decenters the, the individual and it kind of deconstructs, you know, the human um, and takes in this, this broader ecosystem that, you know, we work analogously with, you know, we're, we're embedded in an ecosystem um, of, you know, but our environment and technology. Um, and it's it's slightly it's slightly more more nuanced and it, it's embedded in sort of um in, into more of a, a biosphere um so i don't know i kind of look at like transhumanism is kind of like getting like a pair of fake boobs and then post-humanism is like you know maybe not wearing a bra at all or maybe wearing an underwired bra um, <laughs> <laughs> you know they're very different it's a very different vibe um and as I'm digging into posthumanism, um, it's mostly Rosie Bredotti and Francesca Ferrando that I'm that I'm reading. And there's something here that uh, so Rosie Bredotti describes it as you know that we can take posthumanism as as both a philosophy and a critical theory, um, and employ both creative and critical theories 
she says, to reach at yet unrealized possibilities for overcoming both humanism and anthropocentrism by concentrating on the issue of who is this we whose humanity is now at stake. Um, so that for me is a jumping off point that's like, and then Francesco Ferrando, she unpacks it in, um, into different strands of, of post-humanism um, and looks at post-anthropocentrism and post-dualism. Um, and she also explores, yeah, she also explores post-humanism as, as a sort of cultural post-humanism, which is, which is sort of the, the facet of it that, that I'm, I'm, most, I'm most interested in. Because um, as music is, is my kind of primary, primary language, um, that's been my way into post-humanism without even really realizing it. So I found myself drawn to the work of, um, yeah, the work of, of EAT, so the Experiments in Arts and Technology and Nokia Bell Labs that are primarily based in New Jersey, um, and the work of um, Holly Herndon. Um, and I was drawn to, to all of this mind-bending work um, and then, yeah, for me, that was kind of the gateway into realizing what, how post-humanism might manifest um, creatively. Amazing. And I think one of the things that really spoke to me personally about the research that you, the, the proposal that I read and the work that you're doing is this, this comfort with uncertainty and this deep comfort with complicating things. And it just... It really, really inspired me and got me so excited to talk to you and particularly looking at, so one of the projects um, that you mentioned, um, DAT with Nokia Bell Labs, that was one of the art pieces that we shared um, for to discuss as part of this talk to inspire folks. So if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out, it's still up on the website and we can send around the link as well in our B-Sides email following up this conversation. But there's um, an incredible artist who is actually working with, with machine learning and producing what is essentially a brand new piece of music with a machine as a co-collaborator and co-creator which is extraordinary and it kind of brings makes me wonder if you saw anything during shutdown during quarantine that was a really interesting example of um, music and fellowship and kind of intimacy and creativity in an online space if there were any examples of that kind of inventiveness that really stuck out to you or things that inspired you during shutdown Definitely. So I'm lucky enough to work with, so with Ireland's Edge, who are part of South Room Blows, um, and as part of that company um, is the wonderful Other Voices. And um, I mean, oh my God, like I, I haven't been working directly on the, the Courage series sort of in the background, but, um, you know, as part of a larger team, um, I was kind of, you know, getting all the info as it was, as it was blossoming and then happening. And it really just, I think it just exploded in a way that none of us expected it to. Um, and I think, um, yeah, so the, the, the Courage series where we had um, two different series of, of live streams under the Other Voices um, banner. Um, and I think what's been most fascinating, you know, we've, we've had this technology of, of live streaming available to us for, for years and years and years and years, and it's never felt the way that it, it's felt over the past the past few months and that you know we're continuing to redefine you know what what liveness is and what intimacy is 
to us. And um, yeah, I mean, I think the way in which the way in which both artists and audiences in, engaged with Courage was just was just phenomenal. Um, you know, watching it and watching it in real time, and you know, the comments are like exploding, and everyone everyone is so plugged in, and and I never thought that I would get such a visceral kick from like from from watching watching a live stream from from my living room so i think i mean then again you know fast forward to as we emerge out of this pandemic it's probably not going to have that same potency and that same kick but i mean the fact that we can you know utilize technology um in such an isolated global moment to to find such deep and um yeah, visceral connection, I think is just, is, is mind blowing. <laughs> um, and then I had the pleasure of very last minute stepping in with, so Colin McAnumra, the wonderful, wonderful fiddle player, um, had asked me to, to come and sing some vocals on his Courage set. Um, and I think if I had enough notice, I would have been too freaked out <laughs> to do it. But um, yeah, seeing it from behind the camera was like a whole other, a whole other experience. I mean, the the crew that other voices that we work with um, are called Tiny Arc. And I mean, they've just, they've completely nailed the dark art of the, the seamless, the seamless live stream. Um, and yeah, I mean, from, I suppose it, it's kind of a strange position having seen it from, you know, obviously an, an audience perspective, but also from a performer, performer's perspective. And as an audience member, I mean, it was something I like needed over lockdown. Like, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday, it was like, yeah. oh yeah, thank God <laughs> it's happening. Um, and there were many of the live streams as well that, that I, I watched and I greatly enjoyed. Um, but they became the highlight of the day or the highlight of the week. Um, particularly for me, Denise Chyla's performance, I still get goosebumps when, when I think about it. Like she performed in, in the National Gallery alongside God Knows and... I mean, for me, that was like a, a seminal, you know, pandemic live stream. And there was something about the intimacy, the way in which Tiny Arc filmed her. It was so close. I mean, they were able to, to, to just, yeah, to really connect with her in a way that, you know, if you were in a space with, you know, 2000 people at a gig, that intimacy might have been, well, would have been lost. Um, and the way in which she was able to command the gallery space and you know walk up and down the showroom and stand under whichever painting she wanted to and there was a total freedom there um and it was just it was just so incredibly powerful um so i think yeah i think like you know the seeing you know the the sheer artistry where given the parameters of of a live stream and the parameters of there being, you know, no audience. Um, and, you know, also for the performer, there being kind of no feedback. So it, it's quite a strange space to be in as a performer. And she just, she just totally blew it out of the park. She totally nailed it. And I think created, I mean, it was like an art form in itself. Um, what, what she did with, with the live stream. Amazing. Yeah, incredible. And and she were like, I, I love how in your description of, of these real positive experiences, I guess, that you're speaking about um having had the fortune to tune in like during lockdown and everything. I'm I'm wondering, I'm dying to ask you a little bit more about the theoretical side of your research and how you conceive of maybe some of the more negative sides of um 
I suppose surveillance capitalism. Time to talk about it. I, mm-hmm. I know in our um, <laughs> in our uh, pre uh, in our pre this event conversations that we've we've spoken a bit about how your research draws heavily on Shoshana Zuboff, um, and her work uh, on surveillance capitalism and that groundbreaking mm-hmm. text, um, that came out uh, a couple of years ago about surveillance capitalism. As I said, um, but I'm wondering maybe could you tell us a little bit about how you conceive of how surveillance capitalism fits into um, I suppose the artistic sector um, in, re- in regards to your creative practice and research um, and maybe talk about how artistic and creative practices can fit into the structures of this technological reality uh, if they are dependent on technology in the way that we are now. Yeah, so, um, so I don't think um, creative practices fit at all within, within the, the construct of, of surveillance capitalism. Um, I definitely went into like a very dark Shoshana Zuboff stage at the beginning of lockdown where I just like turned everything off and been there. yeah yeah <laughs> it was like into surveillance capitalism <laughs> yeah it's, it's addictive it's like going down a rabbit hole but she's amazing. yeah she's she's absolutely she's absolutely fantastic um I've taken some notes here just the way the language that she uses um I find it to be extremely extremely effective in the way that she goes about describing what surveillance capitalism is and why we're having so much trouble understanding the nature of the beast um so I, so I suppose she's yeah she's kind of coined the term surveillance capitalism um what she really means is like big data um and how it's how it's harvested and how it's used and she calls it yeah like a, a logic of of accumulation um I find it interesting that she yeah she says that it, it's deeply intentional and it's highly consequential and it's not a technology, it's not an inevitable effect, it's not an autonomous process. Um, and then there's something, when I read this line, I was like, oh my God, I had to like put down the book for the rest of the day. But she says, it originates in the social and it is there that we must find it and know it. And when you're getting to the heart of the social, like what is it to exist online? You know, our, our identities have become so intertwined we don't and especially during lockdown we don't have a separate digital identity or even if it's passive and you're you're watching this live stream you might comment something on it you're still you're engaging you are engaging with that emotionally um so i mean i think it's highly problematic that whilst it's it's wonderful that you know there have been so many fantastic performances generated throughout lockdown um, it's a total catastrophe that they're going out on Facebook and YouTube and even Twitter. Um, and I mean, those services um, and those structures are simply not built um, to facilitate, you know, ethical, ethical, creative um, consumption. However, there was one, one platform through lockdown that I became acquainted with um, I think Crowdcast is, I think, the only ethical platform that, I mean, I will gladly, you know, pay to see a gig on. Um, And I think it actually did get a bit of traction over lockdown. So being able to see like alternative, you know, technological models for for an ethical live stream emerge and be engaged with, I think, is extremely, extremely positive. And I think the more that we can begin to untangle our dependency on you know, from, from the likes of, of, of YouTube or, or Facebook, the better. And the more that we can engage with these emerging platforms, um, 
which, you know, which aren't as, as, I mean, they're not, they're not free. So you're, you're paying to, you know, to use our services, but it's not dependent on exploiting and, and harvesting your, your data as, as such. Um, so this is where, yeah, this is where, you know, for me, where post-humanism comes in. Um, another thing that Shoshana Zabuff says that, you know, that we're having trouble understanding the, the nature of, of surveillance capitalism because we can't quite grasp it. We're still thinking in these, in these binaries. And it's this kind of, she calls it like it's a lag in, in social evolution. And, you know, we need a new mode of thinking to help us, you know, understand the, the nature of the beast. But in the midst of this, of this lag, um, we're, we're very, very far behind. And um, it's sort of at this moment in time where, you know, the surveillance capitalists are bypassing, you know, before, you know, bypassing legislation because it hasn't been, it hasn't been created yet. And um, yeah, that, that's where I feel, you know, if we can begin to adopt a philosophy of post-humanism and also begin to um, engage with technology and not like, not like just social media sites, technology in a, in a broader sense, um, in, a, in a creative way that we might somehow rehabilitate and then find, you know, like, how do we actually, how do we need to connect? What is it that we, we need as, as post-human consumers? Yeah, and I think too, and we'll, uh, we'll touch on it a little bit later, but this idea of what sort of ethical reform is actually needed, and also who has authority over these emerging worlds, who has authority over these socio-technical imaginaries, who is supposed to, who is able to make the decisions, and who is able to make the changes, who's responsible something I'm looking want to ask you um, about and that's this idea of post-human intimacy. I think a lot of people are quite familiar or somewhat familiar with post-human philosophy, post-human art, but in terms of intimacy you think post-human you don't, you think that doesn't sound very intimate at all. <laughs> so yeah there's, oh no you're slightly frozen. Are you gone? I think I think perhaps you want to answer the question to you for as as oh, it. I will, yeah, I will zoom onto the question. Yeah, sure. so so intimacy. So there's something that Genevieve Bell says about about intimacy um, and technology. So she says intimacy transcends technology and has a role uh, to play in shaping it. Um, and I think we we rarely think of of intimacy as as being associated with technology unless it's you know, unless it's the sex way, unless it's something that we, you know, identify clearly as, as something that's, you know, physically intimate. Um, but if we look at, you know, if we look at intimacy as, as emotional intimacy, I mean, the way in which we've all been connecting over the, the past few months has been, um, I mean, we're, we're using the technology we've always had to, I think, have to seek out you know, a much, much deeper, much deeper connection with, with each other. Um, so yeah, so, so, so Genevieve Bell and her team, they, they ran a workshop a little while back, um, seeking to explore this relationship between intimacy and technology. And they kind of broke it down into, into three categories, which I found interesting. So they, they said, yeah, intimacy and technology can kind of manifest in, in three ways. So there's this sort of cognitive and emotional closeness, like I was talking about there. Um, 
and then like a physical closeness of technology being you know so handheld or you know maybe it's literally in your body maybe it's a pacemaker um maybe it's one of those swatches that i would never wear um so i mean but it's <laughs> but then again there's kind of this weird like you know you're super close to your technology but it actually knows you way better than you know it which is extremely odd um and then i guess the third one that we're all, that we're i guess seeking to to arrive at at some point is intimacy through technology um and being able to truly express you know like feelings and sentiments through through technology and and that's where i mean that's where the work of of eat for me um comes in because their their main ethos is is seeking out you know how do we build you know empathetic communication that's guided by the arts um so so with harry with with the reaps ones um we speak music project um so the way in which i mean he's he's highly intimate with this ai that he's building so he's a beatboxer he's working with essentially an ai twin and i mean they're you know physically close they're i guess like artistically intimately close um and it gets to a point where this ai twin begins to create permutations that he has never created so you know the ai is is at a point where it's it's somewhat creatively outpassing him but it's not in a dystopian like robots are taking over the world way it's a like oh my god how do i learn how do i how do i collaborate with this with this ai twin to improve my craft and how do i work with him how do i essentially you know like duet um and i mean artistically that's that's all fascinating and then when we zoom out as to how how that could be embedded in you know back into technology um i mean nokia bell labs are are, are seeking to um to to incorporate the findings of this into into voice technology and voice auto recognition um, but in a way that isn't you know dystopian and misogynistic theory um but you know is you know maybe breeds you know a more natural kind of an intimacy um with with our robots yeah In incredible i mean like on on that Jira, I, I suppose another question i think that arises out of um a lot of what you've been saying already i suppose is this idea of um I know we all kind of talked about this, suddenly everyone was using the phrase the new normal and suddenly everyone knew how to work Zoom and we were all adapting to these online platforms, like as you say, so like the sort of the speed with which the pandemic, I suppose, hit different, the, the world and but different nations individually saw this rapid uptick in uh, sort of social media use and, and uh, like I said, becoming immediately very familiar with these new platforms of video calling, sharing, all these kind of things that you said. I mean obviously like one of the things that you touch on is this idea of how the use of these generates this kind of almost like crisis of awareness and the ethical problems that arise from the use of them um but do you think like do you think that um i suppose that what you talk about intimacy and art and how to achieve that sense of intimacy viewed through the lens of the post-human do you think that they they can act then as as the architects of this of an ethical future i mean do you think that an understanding of the threats that these platforms can pose can can help mitigate the risks that they pose or i know that's a, that's a kind of slightly confused question there but do you, do you kind of get the sense of what i'm asking you yeah here? i mean i mean i i think i think that it, they certainly can um but i mean 
then we're also at a point where, I mean, there's Zoom, but then there's also a new kind of surveillance in terms of, of all of these tracking apps, which are, of course, absolutely po like positively necessary and wonderful. Um, but when surveillance is so closely linked to, um, to governments and to, to state control, um, so this is where, I mean, this is where it needs to be brought to, to a governmental level. And they're, they're, I mean, we're so far behind on, on any kind of legislation. Um, and like, you know, why is it that Ireland is, you know, a host to many, many data centers for Facebook and Google and now possibly ByteDance, which, um, so the, the owners of TikTok. So I didn't realize that this wasn't something that just happened about two weeks ago um, where they were looking at Ireland as a possible new, new data center for, uh, for TikTok, but they've been thinking about this since about December, I think was the first headline, um, where they're gonna put about, I think it's like 420 million into building a new data center. <laughs> um, so like, how do those conversations even get that far along? Like, why are we still, why are we entertaining that as a nation? Um, and I think it's really duplicitous because we parade as being extremely neutral and, you know, and at the same time, we're letting these guys in, you know, through the back door and letting them set up shop and charging them, you know, what was Apple's tax rate? 0.005%. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think, firstly, I think it's important for for us to become aware of, of what's going on and for us not to um, slip into sort of psychic numbing and cynicism um, and to stay engaged with technology um, in a way that's, that's creative and that's empathetic. Um, but I suppose once, once the lay of the land has been illuminated, um, I suppose that's where we need more groups such as AI for Now, which is based out of NYU with Kate Crawford and Meredith Whitaker. And I mean, the work that they're doing is, is seminal. Um, but why isn't there a center like that in every country that's lobbying their own government specifically? So I think there's a lot that, you know, there's a lot that we will learn from engaging creatively with technology and, and beginning to, to even imagine what the ethics look like, because we, <laughs> we just don't even know. So once, maybe once we get to that point, um, you know, I think over the next maybe five years or so, we should really be looking to, to, you know, to encourage research and lobbying centers such as AI for now, um, but specific to, to each country, which will then be specific to its own, its own legislation. Yeah, I, I think that's so fascinating because especially like what you said there about um, government lobbying and this, there, there always strikes me, and this is definitely reinforced by that, again, that groundbreaking Zuboff text and, and how she writes about this really strange sense of almost like ingrained passivity with like big data and with even with governments on a, on a governmental level when it comes to this, these massive kind of data companies. And there's this sort of almost sense that like the technology it's as if the technology kind of precedes the human or something. It's as mm -hmm. if, and Zuboff talks specifically about this, as if this idea that technology is now so advanced that it dictates what we have to do. And it's this kind of convenient forgetting that actually 
technology is human created that we have the power to to sort of it's not a big machine that has grown big mm. in humanity and i really think that's interesting how that fits into this post-human paradigm that you're talking about and absolutely like behavioral modification that like i think a lot of us have become somewhat aware of in a vague sense or sometimes in a very real sense that there is this real behavioral modification going on between the kind of you know real i mean related to the relationships that we're symbiotically building whether consciously or unconsciously with the technology that we're using every single day and it's just the most extraordinary thing and one of the things actually i also wanted to follow up with you on is about maybe talking a little bit more about this symbiotic relationship between ourselves and technology you have extraordinary examples um you know like we've one who who who's collaborating and creating this entirely new piece of music entirely new creative work with the help and with the you know this collaborative dance of a kind with this ai but then you have things about tracking our data keeping track of where we spend our money where we're going so i guess talking a little bit more about the kind of pros and cons of symbiotic relationships with technology and the kind of ethical reform that maybe maybe we should start to strive for or think about. And mm -hmm. in terms of policy reform, I also think about groups like Tactical Tech um, that we're working with, at, hopefully soon at Science Gallery, which would be really, really ex exciting, but bringing that awareness to how, how we can better educate ourselves to interact with these technologies. But if you could speak, yeah, a little bit about that symbiotic relationship. Yeah, because it is, it's an interesting tension. And I think, like I definitely have days where I'm just like, the world is fucked, I'm gonna turn off my phone and turn off my data and nobody can track me, but that's not sustainable. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm still on, well, kind of on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I use Twitter, um, I use Google Maps. Like, you know, I'm not, you know, Shoshana's a buff style where she's like completely gone off the grid and she lives a completely different um, existence um a completely sort of analog existence which is which is formidable um but also next to impossible and um yeah i think i think you know making it you know making it a, a priority to i guess to educate ourselves about about these dangers without getting totally freaked out um whether that's reading you know carol codwallader whether it's watching the great hack whether it's clicking on, you know, the like cookie functions on whatever website you're getting your recipe from. And then you see all the vendors that it's going to and you're like, oh my good God. <laughs> and, you know, being something that I've like become disciplined about is getting into the habit of, of always changing my, my cookie settings and always, you know, turning those functions off. And I mean, it's, it's annoying. It takes an extra minute sometimes when you're trying to check something out but I mean I think even small steps like that um I suppose is 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 educational in, in it in a sense um and reading up on the likes of of Shoshana Zuboff but then yeah then I think but we can't just you know we can't just like turn our back on it's not that see it's not that tech technology is is bad it's that it's that capitalism is bad <laughs> you know it's that yeah. the way in which technology has been um, monopolized by um, by you know these huge tech firms like I read today that Apple are like the first tech company to hit like two trillion dollars like nobody should have that much money 
Um, so I think, you know, framing what we perceive as, as technology, if we frame it within, you know, our current like dying capitalist system, um, um, yeah, so, so I mean, that's in one box, but, but then we can't just be totally freaked out all the time. So I think it's important to, um, I think, like rekindle this relationship we have with with technology and and for me that's that's through that's through art that's through music that's through that that's yeah through through creative engagement um so i think sort of keeping the two even though they're kind of polar opposite um experiences and there's such a tension between the two i think you know it's our responsibility to engage with both so that we're better educated and that we can understand the nature of the beast and then maybe have a bit of time to to have a think about you know what we don't want and what we we do want from our um technologically textured existences totally and i i think though what what you say shiva is is so in a really lovely way is so affirming while also being critical of this you know this capitalistic paradigm that we exist in um where technology as you say is it's not not really an option to not utilize technology but i love how you're positioning i suppose art and creativity as a means to kind of explore this this uh, this kind of new way of existing if we are to live with technology and have our existence facilitated by it i really like that like it's it's art and it's kind of it's very purely human things that are positioned as the sort of solution and and the, the means forward i know when we initially had conversations about the posthuman my first you know my first association with the definition of it was that oh posthuman it must be like humanity entirely supported by technology and i love that your approach and the post-human approach that you follow disrupts this notion of linearity and it's not that no the logical conclusion of humanity is to fuse with technology and you know enter the stratosphere <laughs> it's no it's it's to if not take a step backwards maybe take a step sideways or take a step i, I think linear, mm. linearity doesn't even apply to it anymore but i just love that your your step is one that's towards the human whatever direction that that might be absolutely and towards the the collective towards the collective of humans um, and I think one of the things that gives me uh, the most kind of post-human hope is the work of Holly Herndon. And I suppose if we're to, you know, veer towards an uplifting-ish ending after that segue into surveillance capitalism. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm blown away by, well, firstly, by her, her recent record, Proto, um, and by the, the, the process. So she built an AI band member uh, with her partner, Matthew Dryhurst, and they named this band member Spawn. And Spawn is, they fed, um, they fed so much vocal data into, into Spawn. And Spawn acts as, a, as, like, as an autonomous band member. It's not like man over machine, I will press the button and you know, it will sing this. Um, it's seen as like a creative collaborator. And I think the more that, you know, we can facilitate these kind of interactions with technology where the fear is eliminated. It's not like, you know, oh, I'm going to have to possess the robot. You know, I'm going to have to tell Siri what to do. Or it's not, oh my God, it's looking at me and it's, it's absorbing all of my, my data. The, the more that we can, yeah, like subtract the fear from the equation and, and get to a point where, um, yeah, we're just engaging with technology as if it's, you know, a human and we'll treat it with, you know, with respect and it's, it's an equal in the, in the room. 
it's not any bigger or any smaller. Um, and yeah, there's, yeah, there's something that I noted down here. So Kevin Legrander, so in his piece, Art and the Post-Human, um, yeah, he talks a lot about, um, yeah, he says this ability of machines to take action, to have agency is a key part of what makes post-human art distinctive. This sort of art is often the result of mixed multiple agencies. But I think once we get towards that territory, um, we're no longer stuck in, in this kind of um, this kind of binary of, of a power dynamic. Um, and I think, I think that is what will eventually rehabilitate our, our relationship with technology. <laughs> I love that so much of the work goes to the best in binaries and getting rid of them into a healthier relationship, not only with technology, but I think with ourselves and with people who are unlike ourselves. It really is, though it is a post-human perspective, it's certainly human-centric in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and it's about kind of respect in all directions which is a really really moving um and hopeful way to look at the future um Absolutely. amelia and i have been uh we've been negligent we've been uh <laughs> ignoring our questions we've got a few that have come in so we're gonna throw it over to our audience members so nicole kenna has asked uh do you think it's possible for an ethical company to operate at the same scale as the big social media and technology companies i mean if we were to i suppose we're at, like economically we're at a stage where we've had to emergency pivot into a kind of Keynesian sort of, you know, philosophy and we're emerging and everything could revert to hardcore capitalism or we could veer into what I think is like, you know, essentially like a, a post-human um, post economics. But I mean, more now than ever, why don't we entertain notions of, of UBI? And if we could get towards a place of, of let's say universal base, basic income, and if we get to a place where um, <laughs> these tech firms are being regulated so that nobody is a billionaire, um, and if funding can be allocated to these, these smaller startups, I mean, as they're trying to, as they're beginning to, to try to do in, in the US, um, I think much further down the line, yes. But I think in the meantime, I suppose it's our prerogative to to choose which platforms we are going to to use and which platforms we decide to to engage with. Um, but but yeah, I think it's it's cer certainly possible, but very far away. Absolutely. Um, I'll move on now to uh, a question from uh, Ursula Quill, uh, who has uh, who has joined us with a comment and said, the Courage series is one of the most brilliant things to come out of COVID, really demonstrating the richness of Irish music today across genres. That performance with Colin Macklem on ERA was a standing shiver. Uh, good reading Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing and really liked how she goes beyond the delete your social media account step to ask what would ethical engagement online look like if we redirected our attention to our ecological and cultural surroundings and um, one of the things I took from it was the idea of standing apart not disengaging entirely but refusing more destructive aspects of our attention economy she also had the idea of manifest dismantling which challenges the idea of progress as a constant consumption and destruction I'd be fascinated to know if you have any thoughts on her work or similar ideas wow hello Ursula um 
please slide into my DMs. I, I don't have, I mean, I'm not aware of her. I would love to, I would love to learn more about, about her work. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's connect after this. And I would love to, love to learn more. It sounds fascinating. Um, we also have another question uh, from Jack Shaheen. Um, Shaheen, I feel terrible now. Um, hello, <laughs> a question that I have is whether you think it's time to move from a position of reform of big tech companies to one of active, active hostility. Um, there are anti-monopolist political movements that are trying to break up large corporations, but there seems to be very little political will to try and take over and shut down companies like Facebook, Google, and Apple completely at either national or international levels. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that would be necessarily wise considering just how much data all of these big tech firms have. Um, so if, if that was done by force, um, I mean, that really could be the start of, of a cyber war. You know, they, they have way too much now at, at this stage um, that I think, I think by force um, would be um, absolutely catastrophic <laughs> um, and I think the retaliation um, would be hor horrifically un un unprecedented and again we like I think we need to to, to stop and realize how much we we don't know when it comes to surveillance capitalism um, so this is where I think it, it is the duty of of our governments to catch up with with the legislation and um yeah but we'll put that responsibility <laughs> with them as opposed to single-handedly um putting ourselves in the in the firing line that would be my my personal view yeah i think a lot of people too are just maybe frustrated and just bloodthirsty and particularly frustrated with thinking about the leaders kind of low technological familiarity you know we have these tech natives now growing up this is all they've ever known but those are not the people that are currently in charge watching some members of congress ask questions i remember u.s, US congress um ask questions about facebook and social media watching that interrogation go down it was so frustrating you know it was just infuriating yeah. you think like how could how could you be so ignorant how could you be so foolish and so unprepared to come in front of these tech giants people like mark zuckerberg so unprepared and not asking the tough questions and not having the the familiarity with these these platforms that you really need to have to have an intelligent and really really hard pressed discussion but it, it is frustrating so i understand uh, jack's question that bloodthirsty uh, kind of feeling but it is i think the responsibility of us all to think about the kind of reforms that we really, really want and to, to mm -hmm. take the time to make those decisions. So thank you. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, another uh, colleague and friend of ours, uh, Sahar Ahmad, has joined us. And Sahar is asking, um, she was wondering whether Shifra thinks it's even possible to break up the monopolies when big data is actively cozying up with fascist regimes around the world. And um, there's been a new re report released that has exposed Facebook actively supporting the BJP in India and silencing dissent through overt and covert company policies. Well, I mean, I think this has been this has been the the steady current of of, of surveillance capitalism for for many years now, and. Um, I mean, we, we've got Trump and, and we've got Brexit and we now know, we now know why. Um, so, I mean, 
maybe maybe it isn't possible to 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 break up the the force of these of these big ginormous tech companies but um i mean we have to at least get to a point where we're trying to legislate against them um yeah i don't know the answer to that but um i mean i guess the the optimist in me would like to think that you know that we can catch up and we can bridge this lag in in social evolution um and and get to a point where firstly we understand what's going on and secondly that you know we might be able to legislate and and recommend and and create create an alternative an alternative framework and um, so that's yeah that's my utopian ideal <laughs> Um, so we've got a couple other questions. Uh, one from Celine uh, Bellboys, and she says, "Thank you for a wonderful conversation." Just two questions. The first question is about Rosie Berdotti, um, and starts the post-human by saying, "Not all of us can say with any degree of certainty that we have always been human, or that we are only that. Some of us have not even been considered fully human now." Uh, let alone at previous moments of Western social, political, and scientific history. How do you articulate this chronological approach to the so-called human and post-man? What, uh, what may be with how you think of the relationship between the human, the technology, and art? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I love the way that Rosie Bredotti, um sums that up um and i think yeah I, th I think she really she really delves into she really unveils i guess the uh, the sheer ugliness of um like of humanism and of um i suppose we've kind of glorified the anthropocene right like over you know through like culturally and it's been something that's certainly been been put on a pedestal and i think the way in which she sort of de-glorifies the Anthropocene. Um, yeah, it's quite, uh, it's quite disturbing. Um, and I think a function of, of post-humanism is, is, to, is to act as, as a mirror of sorts, allowing, you know, all of, all of us who, who are transitioning out of the Anthropocene, possibly into the Novocene, hopefully, um, to stop and consider, you know, how much of this we we have absorbed, and and why why we need to to move away from from biases, um, and how yeah how, how dangerous they they are, and how dangerous they can be, and how invisible um, and intangible they can they can also be. Um, could you repeat the last part of the question? Sure. Um, so, oops. There's so many questions now coming in. Um, how do you articulate this chronological approach to what the so-called human and post-man may be with how you think of the relationship between the human, technology, and art? So chronologically, I guess, you know, at this very moment in time where, you know, we are, we're, we're abandoning this sense of, because we have to, we're, we're, at, we're at, like, we're at a crisis point. Um, it's it's not working. So humanism is is failing us. The Anthropocene um, is a silly construct. I suppose chronologically, you know, 
those words, you know, are rooted as far back as, um, as, yeah, yeah. I think I think as far back as as Greece as as Greek culture, um, and I think I think as we approach, yeah, like this this crisis point, um, to at our disposal we have, I guess, art and technology as a sort of different epistemological tools. So they're different sort of modus operandi for us to uncover and and unveil and 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 see this sort of hidden reality that's that's surrounding us. Um, yeah. So I think I think yeah at this point chronologically as we begin to transition into an existence where they're nearly like interchangeable languages and they're d different modes of expressing both um, I guess intellect and emotion. Um, that we are at a point of or at a precipice of perhaps greater understanding on um i guess the death of this this mind body cartesian construct um shira celine also asks um another question uh which is also i think a, a really a, maybe a really lovely note to end on if, if we uh, if we just have time for this last question um which is that uh she, so she says my second question is how digital arts explore what it means to be post-human in different areas of the world and particularly in areas of the world where access to technology is harder Ooh, could you repeat that once more yeah of course so she says um uh, her second question relates to how digital arts explore what it means to be post-human in different areas of the world and particularly in areas of the world where access to technology is harder so yeah, so, so this is where, I mean, to be post-human, I mean, my view of it anyway, you don't necessarily need technology. I think it, it's primarily, it's more of a, it's a philosophy of sorts as opposed to, um, I think transhumanism is, is extremely wrapped up in, in technology and in, in science in order to execute its, its views. But I think to, to adopt um a, a post-human perspective and and existence um i mean I, I think it's something that isn't dependent on um access to to certain technologies necessarily um which is why it's a kind of philosophy that i think can 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 permeate through through the broader ecosystem and, and biosphere and why it's a philosophy of um, of equality, really. Um, and I think it's one that is um, both extremely accessible and extremely empowering to both the individual and to, and to the collective. That's fascinating. Um, I've actually just spotted if we're going to be a little bit cheeky and get one more mm -hmm. question in before, uh, before we Go wrap up. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. <laughs> um, so Alison Carey asks, um, I was wondering if she ever could share her opinion of new modes of performance, collaboration, performance spaces and audience experience um, in uh, online gaming platforms uh, in the wake of COVID. So would she consider, it, do you, Shiva, do you consider experiences in platforms such as Fortnite and Twitch to be part of the surveillance capitalist problem or a new space in which to collaborate and perform? So big meaty question. Oh, <laughs> so good, so wow, good. Wow, 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 wow. So, yeah, that is very good. So my disclaimer is that I'm not a gamer. However, um, 
I don't know enough about, so I don't know enough about gaming to know exactly how much of a surveillance mechanism it, it can or it can't be. But from an artistic point of view, um, I mean, being able to, to, you know, to enter into, into a whole other simulated reality um, and to engage in a way that is, you know, is your, you know, it's, it, I presume it's like lucid dreaming to, to become as embedded in, in, in a dream like that, um, that I would see it as being, certainly being something, something positive. Um, in terms of, although, yeah, although that gaming is not my, my area of expertise, um, this idea of, of sort of cyber collaboration was something that, that we explored as part of, um, so an other voices project about two weeks ago, the team teed up, um, what I think is a, a groundbreaking project with, with Haldan in Germany. They have a festival called Haldan Pop. Um, and we twinned, so Dingle with, with Haldan and in, in real time, Stargaze based over in Germany played alongside Cormac Begley, Peter Broderick, Lisa Hannigan, and like for me, like, I mean, it was, it was completely mind blowing to, to watch, you know, sheer artistry in real time in, in different locations. Um, I mean, I do, I see that as, for me, that's certainly a post-human um, artistic collaboration. And I need to, uh, I need to get into uh, Fortnite and up my gaming chops. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Super. I think on that note, we're just out of time. Um, so thank uh, you so much. Of course, look, it's, it's just up to me now just to say um, a sincere and heartfelt thank you to, to you for such an incredible conversation. Thank you for fielding all of our um, very, very specific and often quite theory-based questions. Um, I, and thank you so much to the audience for such wonderful um, queries as well. Um, but honestly, the, 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 the thanks is with you, Shiva, for, for being so wonderful with us tonight. Um, so yeah, it's just up to me to, to, uh, to, to pretty much hand over to Autumn to close out and just a reminder to everybody that we'll be um, very happy to send on um, our, what we call our B-Sides email, where we send on um, basically just a list of links to conversation, to topics and articles and concepts that we've spoken about today. I know we, we spoke about a lot of different artists and initiatives, um, as well as different, um, you know, theorists and texts and stuff. So we will send a follow-up email just with, with links to those and links indeed to Shiver's website so you guys can keep, keep track of her and keep following her um, online and, and, and her progress. Um, so yeah, thank you to the audience, but most of all, thank you to you, Shira. Um, thank you so much. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you for joining us and everybody. We'll be back next month uh, with another guest, uh, but it's been amazing to spend this time with Shira and to end on a note of hope uh, to say that there's a lot to look forward to and that even though these are strange and dire times that post-humanism is actually a kind of new way forward of collaboration and coming together and a respectful collaborative future so hope you if you take anything away from this um before we send our b-sides uh, i hope that you come away with a lot of hope about our creative futures and the kind of reform that we're capable of um, so thanks Shiva, for empowering us and sending us away with so much to think about amazing so cool. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks a million. <laughs> Thanks, I hope. Take Bye. care.
The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.